The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 9th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the similarities and differences between election TV and sports TV, and whether election forecasters should be criticized or celebrated for their performance in 2020. We'll also compare how a great sports victory compares to a political one. And by the way, the Saints beat Tom Brady and the Bucks 38-3 on Sunday night. We'll also discuss the biggest college football game of the year thus far, Notre Dame's overtime win over number one Clemson, who is missing its COVID-positive quarterback, Trevor Lawrence. I'm in Washington, D.C., the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4. Also in D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak. In a few seconds of panic, I missed you at the White House, Stefan. I think we were, we were there at separate times. Yeah. Do you regret having gone down there and waded into the crowd? Uh, maybe we should save that discussion for our Clemson Notre Dame field rushing uh, segment. What about or, or, or for our How <laughs> Politics Are Like Sports segment. A lot of different oppor- you know, places and opportunities to, uh, to fit that in. With us from Palo Alto. It is the host of Slowburn Season 3 and the upcoming Season 6. Slate staff writer, Joel Anderson, victim of New York Times theft. Joel Anderson, how are you, Joel? Oh, I, I, what happened? What did the New York Times do? Your New York Times was stolen. Your, your, oh, yes, your, right. Oh, yes, somebody stole it right out of my yard. <laughs> the New York man. Times did not steal from you. I was, the New I'm, York was, Times was stolen from you. <laughs> I was thinking in terms of Ruth uh, Shalit Barrett uh, type yeah. theft. I didn't know. No. Okay. No, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, man. I went downstairs, looked for it, and it wasn't there, but they left my San Jose Mercury news at the very least, so I appreciate mm. them thinking I couldn't local. tell from your tweet how pissed off you are. Like, I mean, it's a, it's a crime that was perpetrated against you and your family that that memento has been yeah. well, uh, arrested you know, from your grasp. I, I had been out earlier in the day, and I just, I, I, it didn't even occur to me that it wasn't there. And then when I went back out later in the afternoon and it wasn't there, I was really mad. Uh, you know, this is the second time in the last two weeks that somebody has walked into my yard and I don't want to get into it too much. But <laughs> if it's this person I think it is, we're going to have a problem if I see him in front of my house again. So. Joel, do you know anybody that might be able to get you another copy of the historic New York Times? <laughs> um, you know what? You would think, but it has proven to be much more difficult to get copies of the New York Times than you would think. So during this transition period, it's very important for us to forgive, to look at, at people who might disagree with us, who might steal from us, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just say, you know what? It's time for us to come together as one nation. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. 
Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. The hang up and listen decision desk is prepared to call the 2020 election for Joe Biden. As of Monday morning, Biden has secured 279 electoral votes. He leads in Georgia and Arizona as well. Uh, He's on track for 306 electoral votes, same number that Donald Trump won in 2016, if we disregard the faithless electors. Biden's also up by nearly 4.4 million votes and three percentage points in the popular vote thus far. Those will both continue to climb those margins. He's estimated one by closer to five points when all the votes are tallied. So in the end, a comprehensive victory for Biden. And in the beginning, it did not feel like any kind of victory. On Tuesday night, as Florida went to Trump and then Texas went to Trump and then Ohio went to Trump, things were looking uncomfortable and very reminiscent of November 8th, 2016. Things didn't start to turn around for Biden until after 4 a.m. on Wednesday when, uh, that's 4 a.m. Eastern on Wednesday, uh, I was awake and I saw a huge batch of ballots coming from Milwaukee, tilting the state of Wisconsin in Biden's direction. And after that, we got a very slow march to that 270 uh, electoral vote threshold, which he finally crossed, according to all the networks, on Saturday around 11.30 a.m. Eastern. Um, So... That was a very useful recap for people who were not paying attention to uh, the election. Glad I could provide that service. Um, I, I say all of that because not, you know none of it is sports, Stefan, but there are ways in which it's sports-like, right? You've got the studio shows, the pundits, the analysts, the on-screen graphics. Those are all very familiar to anyone who's watched a network football game. The obvious difference here is that there's no game to cover on election night. It's already been played by the campaigns over the last year, by the voters who cast their ballots. And so from the audience's perspective, the numbers, the vote counts, as they come in irregularly, only sometimes accurately, that is the game. And that leads, in my view, to all sorts of problems with both how the coverage is produced and also how it's consumed. Yeah, I, obviously, it's it's the, the outcome is already determined. And the falsehood, the myth that the networks create is that we are watching something happen in real time. The only thing we're ha- watching happen in real time is that someone is adding something up and telling us what's been added up. I mean, to make a sports analogy, I mean, it's really like sports before there was technology. Um, it's like watching the World Series in Times Square and waiting for the teletype machine to send the results that are then posted on a giant board where hundreds of people have gathered to see what's going to happen. It's already happened, right? It's happened like hours ago or minutes ago in the case of my baseball analogy, but it's already happened. Um, it's like if the players were sequestered and the game wasn't televised and then they start reporting afterwards the scores by inning but at random like they report the bottom of the seventh before the the top of the first yeah and i mean i think after 2016 i had grown wary of placing my trust in polling right i think all of us sort of knew better than to put so much faith in and you know these numbers that were coming in and I, i just remember on tuesday night the early numbers came in from Pinellas County in Florida. The uh, the county seat of Pinellas is St. Petersburg, which is right near next door to Tampa and Hillsborough County. And they looked really good for Joe Biden. And I, I was like, oh, wow, that's shocking. I was like, he's doing really well in this county. And then within like two hours, uh, 
everything had flipped around and it was clear that it looked like, uh, you know, that Trump was going to win Florida. And I was like, oh, man, how did I allow myself to fall? But I mean, the thing is, you're only taking in a couple of sources of information. They're all pull, pulling from the same data and we're looking at it, you know, presented in a bunch of different ways, all on TV or, you know, the Internet or whatever. And so you can't help if you're going to pay attention to this stuff, you can't help your instincts. Your instincts are going to say, oh, wow, that looks good. And you're just going to respond to these numbers as they keep going up. So I don't I actually don't know what we can do to sort of um, I guess to sort of change our human behavior, our natural human behavior, because, I mean, w- there's no other way to really keep up with this stuff other than to fully immerse yourself in what, you know, the coverage of it. Well, it's, it's a, isn't it a chicken and egg thing, Josh? I mean, you can say which came first, the way we cover sports or the way we cover politics. And I think the way we cover politics is a direct outgrowth of the success that we know, you know, we've had in, in engaging human reaction. And just like you said, Joel, it's about how we respond to these stimuli, these inputs. Um, and just as in sports, we get excited when something changes and it makes us reconsider what might happen in the next few moments. That's the model that we have landed on after many, many cycles of this in presidential elections. It's just been refined to the point that political coverage mimics sports coverage. I mean, the magic wall is a telestrator. David Axelrod and Rick Santorum are Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman. You know, and we can take that conversation further about whether Stephen A. Smith is entertaining and Rick Santorum is just an ass who's there to be a counterweight. Um, But all of the techniques parallel. Yeah, I think the fundamental issue here is that what we're being presented on television looks authoritative, but is not. And after every election, there are all these, you know, lessons that are supposedly learned. And after 2016, and I think, you know, after the the 2000 election, um, there was a genuine lesson learned about caution in terms of calling states too early. And whether the hesitation this time around was because of, you know, fear about making the election look rigged or stolen because of Trump's rhetoric about that, if that's what caused all of this hesitation to to call the election for Biden, or whether it was just genuine lack of confidence given the different kinds of ballots, the mail-in ballots, the day of ballots, the provisional ballots, and not knowing how that would shake would shake out. And that's what led the del- to, you know, to Saturday, the the delay. Um, but that's something that does seem to have taken hold, this like caution and calling the states. But the thing that has never taken hold, and there's criticism, rightful criticism about it after every presidential election, is that every freaking time you get Wolf Blitzer on TV saying, you know, Biden is in the lead or Trump is in the lead. And it's not true. It's just a construct. It's just like based on the way in which the votes are reported based on the way in which the votes are counted. And especially this cycle, it's just a totally inaccurate and misleading way to present things because in Pennsylvania, the Republican-controlled legislature prevented the state from counting the mail-in ballots until after the day of ballots were were reported. And so this idea that Trump was in the lead was playing, that was a political narrative that everyone was presenting as just like a straightforward factual one. But wait a minute, Josh, what would be 
the better, more responsible television presentation there? Because you said it looks authoritative, but it's not. But we are looking at actual information. We're just looking at it as it comes in. It's just being tabulated, right? So, I, and, it, you know, without regard for the reasons, as you p- mentioned in Pennsylvania, they did not allow them to tally the early votes until, you know, until, you know, election day. So it, it, it artificially made it look like, you know, Trump was ahead when he wasn't necessarily. But I just don't know. And I mean, maybe I'm maybe this is a cop out, but I actually don't know if you want to keep tabs on election night. What is the better, most responsible way to do it? Because it's not like sports. I mean, when people score, you see them score. You know what I mean? It's not like I guess it'd be maybe similar to like a ESPN Sports Center highlight where they say, oh, well, you know, Clemson led throughout the game. And then at the end, you know, Notre Dame. I mean, you can't do an election that way. Right. So what would be so the the two alternatives would be and I I think this will reflect your point exactly that it's like neither of these seem particularly appealing. One alternative would be to just announce what the final result is when it's over and not give any intermediate results. That's not going to be satisfying to viewers or to, you know, television um, production outfits, but that would be one obvious way not to mislead along the way. The other option, which people hate, is the New York Times needle, um, which looks at which precincts have reported fully and looks at, the, you know, this this time they were looking at different kinds of ballots and whether they skew more Democratic or Republican. And, you know, for all of the like wild fluctuations and for all that had traumatized people in 2016, this time in 2020, it did predict accurately and very early that um, Florida was going to go to Trump. And it did switch to saying that Georgia was going to go to Biden when the vote total said that Trump had a big, big lead in, in Georgia. And so if you're able to get that sort of precinct level look at like how the votes coming in what the kind of vote is and it's accurate it's sort of like the win probability graphs that we get in sports right like you know the the patriots have a 73 percent chance if they're up seven to three you know some of that stuff feels useless and it can go back and forth wildly but it's based on like you know a lot of of data and it's probably a more accurate presentation than just like what's on the scoreboard at the moment. Well, what I would say then is that given that like we're in this, uh, I mean, we're in this really, you know, divided time in the absence of information, I think people that are um, looking to confuse people and looking to mislead them would fill in the gap with bad information. In the absence of information, somebody would fill it in with bad, you know. Somebody would fill it in with inaccurate numbers, trying to mislead people. I just don't think that there's a way to get around bad actors. You know what I mean? I think you're right. But Stefan, I mean, this is the awkward case where, in this case, the election night information we're getting is in some sense accurate. It's real, but it's bad. Mm-hmm. It's misleading. Right. So what, what, what's, what's the solution? I mean, the, I think Joel's right. It, you'd get this infill of exit polling and man on the street interviews um, and more talking heads uh, uh, assessing the completed results and more distrust of analytics. Um, I mean, think of all the opprobrium that's been heaped not only on polls, but on poll aggregation and people like Nate Silver in this cycle for missing 
as a lot of the polls did in 2016, the depth of Trump's support. Um, and when you look closely, the miss isn't that great. And ultimately, the the national polling and the aggregation seem to get it mostly right again, though maybe not in the ranges that we'd like to be um, comfortable with. But that's what would fill it in. And I think that in the absence of a complete and total sort of overhaul and agreement by all of the networks to abide by some standard, the free-for-all is the only way that this is going gonna, is gonna to continue. Um, I, so I, I, don't have, see where, I, I, I don't see where this shifts. I don't see how you stop Wolf Blitzer from saying, you know, giant update, we just got 3,000 more votes from, from Bucks County. Um, and, and assessing that as important. I think the major gains to be made here is to upgrade the, the blitzers. You know, on MSNBC, I wrote a, a, a thing in praise of Steve Kornacki, and they were very deferential to Kornacki. And in this case, it was like the nerd and the, st- the stats guy at the magic wall was given the kind of lead starring role here rather than the people who are just the presenters who are like kind of dumbly reading the stuff that's coming across the screen. It's it's less about, I think if we're talking about, about reality and things that are likely to change, it's it's less about any kind of dramatic improvement or change. And it's more about like harm reduction. It's like, don't say the dumb thing about, oh, he's up by 200,000. That's a big, you know, jumping out to an early lead. Just don't say that. And just say, say like, all right, here's some early early returns. Let's go to Steve Kornacki. What does this mean? Right. This means yeah, I, nothing, right? <laughs> I just think it's really hard to work around people, man. Because as ever in and anything, people are the problem. And, yeah. you know, some right. people are going to understand probability, the difference between probabilities and prediction, and some people are not. And I'm not saying, I'm not going to pretend that I know math, you know, that I'm really good at math. But I think I had a good grasp on the fact that when, you know, I know Nate Silver takes a lot of abuse um, sometimes justifiably, but I think I understood with it, him saying that Biden had a 90% chance of winning. That didn't mean that Biden was going to, you know, that Biden was going to win. It just meant that he had a really strong chance of winning, but you know, with anything else, you know, who, who, who could account for all the different factors? And I, and actually there was so much, I think Josh Keating wrote this for us. He said, uh, for slate, he said, data journalism is only as good as the data that goes into it. And there was so much outside of the realm of data this year, and pr- probably in years past, but certainly this year, that affected the final results from voter suppression efforts to the pandemic to the intentional slowdown of the Postal Service to maybe the Bradley effect, whatever. Um, it was just really difficult to get your arms around, you know, what the numbers actually were. And so I don't, I don't know, man. I don't really hold it against Nate. I don't hold it against, you know, CNN. I know that, you know, MSNBC, I think Steve... Karnacki did, actually did do a really good job, as you wrote, Josh. But I just think that people are going to interpret from things what they want to interpret. And they're going to look for somebody to be to blame when it doesn't turn out the way they expect. Um, and that's kind of where we are now. I mean, I do blame CNN a little bit because the the fix to moving away from this 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 minute-by-minute update narrative that Wolf Blitzer is enamored of is obvious and I don't and I don't think it would affect whether I'm watching CNN or another network. I mean the reality is I watched less of CNN because of it. 
So I may be alone and I may be different and I may not be representative of the audience, but I found myself switching to other networks, including Fox, um, to get a better view of what people were saying and how this was being covered. So trusting network executives to make big changes is a fool's errand. Um, But at the same time, the obviousness of what went wrong here because of the way this was structured in individual states and how the data was going to be released is pretty clear. And one would think that just as sports teams have come to have a better over the last 20 years understanding of how to accept and implement data, that networks could be able to do that too. I feel like I... I'm kind of in a middle ground on the Nate Silver question because there's a lot of polarization on the Nate Silver question around people who defend him. And I think the way he defends himself, saying that if if you critique his his model, it's because you don't understand statistics and, and probability. And then on the other side, people who say that his stuff is, wor- is inaccurate and, and worse than useless. I think the middle ground here is that there's a communication issue. And if people don't understand the information that you're delivering to to them. And the the solution to that is not just telling people that they're dumb and like, well, it's not my fault that you don't understand this this thing that I'm doing. Like the like it's sort of like yelling at your political opponents, telling them that they're stupid is not going to change anyone's mind. And there so so there's that issue that I feel like there is a fundamental like communication problem with like the 538 model and how it's received in the world. But I also feel like the thing that bothers me a lot is when whether it's Nate Silver or, you know, Harry Inton from from CNN saying on election night like, "Oh, I I really love elections." treating it again like it's a game, treating it like it's fun, treating it like, uh, like, wow, isn't this crazy what, what's going on here? And there's a feeling that the stakes for the, the people who are in the prediction business feel like sort of like narrower and more blinkered, that they're more concerned with the kind of like drama of like which way it's going to come out and who's going to win and what the numbers are going to be and like the drama and the excitement of it as opposed to what are the like political and policy implications of this event that has enormous stakes and so for me there's just there's just this like kind of disconnect between these people who are saying oh everybody who's focused on the narrative here is like getting it wrong and like you're just using your guts and not like you know, looking at the best information and, you know, punditry is bad. And the people are being like, wow, isn't this like fun and dramatic and exciting? There seems like a kind of fundamental disconnect or or misunderstanding of how elections are watched and understood by a lot of people. But so much of our governance and our politics are are based on this idea that it is a game. And we've seen a lot of that over the last four years, that the consequences are secondary to the trolling and the fighting and the gamesmanship. I mean, you and I and Joel, I think we all live in a sort of anhedonic middle. You know, we, we'd like this to just be a rational process that leads to an outcome that helps us govern the country better. And we don't view it as a sports game 
where I want to be emotional and I want to be vested in whether one side wins or another, and I want to be vested in the process of that happening. I want to enjoy that process. This isn't supposed to be fun, but it's in the network's interests and the interest of the political punditry business to make it seem like it's fun, to make it seem like it's a fight, to make it seem like it's a game. All right, let's break there. We'll be back and we'll get back to more of this momentarily. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, before we move on, I just had one other thought on Nate Silver and the 538 forecast, which this time around had Biden as like an 89% favorite going into the election. And it's the the one kind of small bore point is that, and, and getting at what, what you said, Joel, emotionally, even with Biden, you know, ultimately winning a clear victory, it's hard to parse that prediction is correct, even though it was like, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying, right? Like, and, and I think that the way that Nate Silver talked about it on election night with like tweeting at 1015, the narrative here, fairly dumb overall. And then after the election, he's like, there was never any, I don't believe there was ever any point when Biden wasn't the favorite. Um, Just not really an understanding of how people watch and understand and interpret the results. I don't know if I'm asking for for more empathy or for more explanation, Um, But there's just this way in which you can be right and also be wrong. It it might feel dumb to say it it that way, and it might be inaccurate, but it's just like a true encapsulation of how people experience these events. And the bigger picture question I have then is, what is the point of this forecast? I've actually been thinking about that question a lot, and I haven't been able to articulate it to myself. Like when in Josh Keating's piece um, for us at Slate, he wrote, that, you know, Nate Silver's in the reassurance business. And he rose to prominence. You know, he was a baseball prospectus guy. He came out of the sports world. He rose to prominence in 2008 because he was saying that Obama was going to win. And people looked at him on the left as this oracle of, of again, and, and somebody who reassured them that the election was going to come out the way that they wanted it to come out. And I think that there's definitely something to that in 2016 and 2020 that you look at these five... 38 numbers every week, and they're kind of soothing in a way of like, oh, this election's going to come out the way that I want, uh, that I want it to come out. I mean, what if we lived in a world in which Donald Trump had been the presumptive favorite as the incumbent? Do you think that 538 and Nate Silver would, in the polls, would not have reflected that? And 
I mean, who who I think who's they would supposed have, to be reassured but, but, by this? But but in the Nate Silver era, we've never experienced that. I think every election, according to five thirty eight, the Democrats have gone in as the favorite, and so there is this way in which um, you know Democrats want to have this reassurance, and then feeling like the numbers and the stats are pointing in your direction see, is kind of soothing in that way. See, I think I think there's a couple things of that. One, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, for people looking for reassurance, I mean, that's just, I think they're going to find that wherever they want, right? That they're going to be the people that, you know, no, they're going to read the tea leaves as positive for them or, or, or in, in some sort of way that will reassure them, regardless, right? And I oh, mean, I'm really sounding like a Nate Silver apologist, but the other. But don't you think, p- like in the Trump era, that there's this dynamic that is, and you can move back a little bit further if you want to get into like, you know, climate change denial versus like climate change science. That there's this like kind of left-right schism of, you know, people on the left want to believe like that the numbers and the data are true and real. And they define themselves as being people that trust the data and trust the science. And people on the right, especially people who support Donald Trump, are like, whatever is in the media is wrong. It doesn't capture what's like truly happening and how people truly feel. And so I think the Nate Silver thing does not challenge that dynamic at all. Well, yeah. I mean, I I think that's probably true. But I mean, Nate, at least in the Trump era, the data has largely been right. You know, I mean, it's not like Nate Silver's probabilities have been wrong. I mean, he acknowledged that Donald Trump had a much greater chance of winning in 2016 than most people did. And he accordingly won, although Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and it held up again in 2020. And the other thing about in terms of reassurance, I mean, actually, for Democrats or people on the left, like reassurance is a bad thing in terms of polling, because like you don't want to get complacent. And I mean, you saw that, you know, I think in the, like the final weekend that, you know, they, uh, you, f- you first started hearing the campaign and some other like operatives say, oh, the numbers aren't that great coming out of Florida. Like, don't be, be complacent. We need people out there. So like reassurance, even, even if it like is momentarily soothing, it's at ultimately bad for people because it doesn't drive turnout, right? Well, Republicans are claiming that the 17 point Wisconsin poll, the one that showed Democrats up by 17, was voter suppression, that that these partisan polling firms were, were saying that Biden had a big lead to discourage Republicans from voting. I guess, Stefan, maybe, I, I feel like I'm a bit all over the place, but I feel like maybe one point here is like, it's back to the question of numbers and how they're reported and how they're thought about and how they can overwhelm everything else. Like, because 538 has written all of these articles with in, innumerable caveats about, you know, they're always like Trump still has a chance to win and here is how he could win. But it's that top line number in the really big font that says 89%. And, you know, it, that number is worth tens of thousands of words. It's the only thing that people look at and, and think about. And it does seem to me to overwhelm a lot of the other work that they do. Do you, as, how do you as it, feel as about it's, that? As it's inevitably going to, because we want simplicity. And we also want to be able to go back and say he was wrong, because that's a huge part of our culture, too. Um, and it's this, you know, Nate Silver and others are operating 
on a level that is almost you know, of delivering things that are incomprehensible to most people. They're not as reducible as they appear to be. You know, they do reduce them to 89%, and Biden's likely to win, but the reality is much more granular. The fine print is much more important, um, but that's always going to get lost, and I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you know, the, pivoting back to sports for a second, I mean, sports have, have found a way to better integrate the use of data and get people who were completely intransigent for years to accept the, the, the import and the role that data play in understanding and enhancing games. I don't know that it's as simple a, a, a transition in politics, though, because of the tribal nature and, our, and the, the weight that we place on it. Um, and maybe that changes when Trump isn't in office and we're all obsessively following the news and, you know, hanging our, our fragile psyches and also the state of the nation and other more important things uh, on the outcomes. I don't know. So getting to, to numbers that we can all kind of get behind, according to Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders, um, this was, you know, he, he might have updated this by the time our podcast comes out on Monday evening, but he said it's, you know, he'd have to go back into his records to find a time that a team performed as well as the New Orleans Saints did on, oh, on Sunday God, night. Oh, God, no, you couldn't wait to talk wow. about this. One, you go. 142.7% DVOA. That's the kind of number that America can all get behind. <laughs> Whereas Tampa Bay's was minus 109.7%. Um, so who's Biden here and who's Trump in that game? Well, you know, Tom Brady seems to have, uh, you know, cast his, his sympathies with... Uh, you know, a, a particular campaign given the, the MAGA hat that he was seen with in the Patriots locker room. But <laughs> our friend Ben Mathis Lilly, Joel, sent on Slack, I think this was on Wednesday, in, in the torrent of Slack messages at, at Slate, this is one that really stuck out with me. He wrote, I've been really perversely reassured of my humanity that I felt a thousand times worse about this, this meaning the possibility that Biden was going to lose to Trump. I felt a thousand times worse about this than any sports loss in memory. And this is a guy who's a psychotic Michigan football. And so watching this. He hadn't even seen the Indiana game yet either. I mean, God, so let's, let's revisit that. <laughs> but watching watching the Saints game on Sunday, I was just kind of like sitting there, just like in a nice, like pleasant buzz, just watching watching this performance. And then during during the week, I actually was having like physical manifestations of stress. Like I was having back spasms during the week. I was having like trouble sleeping. I don't know how, what what you guys were doing. Um, but like, as I said, I was up to like after 5 a.m. Uh, on on Tuesday. I think in general in life, and like all praise to you if this is not the case, but like bad stuff feels worse than good stuff feels good, no matter what what the realm is. But just like, this was, this was just like a pleasant, soothing end of the week buzz where I was just sitting there allowing like the, this great Saints performance to kind of wash over me. And it felt like more, and maybe it, it's the difference between like a tight sports victory and like one you pull out at the end versus like a complete landslide domination. So I don't know if this is like how I would have felt if Joe Biden won Florida and Texas in Ohio, just like kind of sitting there and like allowing 
the electoral map, to, just like soaking it in. But it was it was definitely a major major difference in perception for me. Well, there's nothing like your favorite team, you know, locking in a win and just hammering a team all game long. I mean, I think people that talk about, you know, I, if I if there are no stakes involved, like if there's a team where you don't have any allegiances and a game is competitive and tight, great. But if there's actual stakes involved, there's a team that you care about, and the game is close, it's actually miserable. And it feels it feels worse for longer than the win at the end would feel good, right? So yeah, no, well, you, I mean, if you know that if you know that your team's gonna win, you want it to be like a close and exciting victory. No, it's like, no, you know, no, 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 no. Wait, I always love an ass kicking for, uh, from start <laughs> to finish. Yeah. Like I think that's fantastic. One of the best games I ever saw was a few years ago when TCU had Trevor and Boykin at quarterback, yeah. and they beat they beat Texas like forty to seven in Austin. And I was like, that was great. I watched every minute of it. You know, I thought I've it was always fantastic. loved an ass kicking. Would you go back and watch it again? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, but that's how that's how much, you know, yeah, I, I like seeing my team play well and dominant and I don't need them to win a close game. I mean, keep now keep in mind, I'm a person that grew up with nineteen eighty three Foss Lama Jamma, the nineteen ninety three Houston Oilers, and the two thousand fourteen TCU, which lost a three touchdown fourth quarter lead to Baylor that costed a shot at the first playoff. So um I'm scarred. Close games don't hold any appeal to me. You like yeah, crushing I, the I, week, I, I no that, mercy, running up the yeah, score. <laughs> right, yeah, let's get it let's get it out of the way. I just but close, a, close uh, games are like an election tons. where you know you're gonna win. Like in retrospect, the close game feels fantastic. You know, my people pulled it out. Like, you know, I mean, think of the great closing victories in sports history. Those are all dynamic in the moment. I mean, I was in the stadium when the United States beat Algeria on Landon Donovan's last second goal. That whole game was so much fun because of the tension. If the United States had lost, it would have sucked, though. Wait, it was um, fun in the moment watching it? You thought it was fun the whole way? That was the best game I've ever been in, one of the greats. I mean, it was just so much fun to be in there. The tension, the, the All right, what's an example of a really great game where your team lost, Stefan? Yeah. Oh, well, mm-hmm. that's easy. The Yankees-Red Sox in 2004 in the series. And you enjoyed Dave that Roberts. the whole way? I did not enjoy that for one motherfucking <laughs> second. <laughs> I was in Yankee Stadium when Dave Roberts stole second base. That was It was gutting. But back to the Saints... Back to the same. Wait, before we get box. to that, can I yeah. try to move? Can I try to move Joel off this position? I'm going to take yeah. one last one last effort. Oh, okay. um, so you you would sacrifice the kind of amazing thing that you feel in a part- in an individual moment, like a great like last second play and touchdown. Like that's gonna. You'll admit that that will spike you up to a higher level just in an in that instant than you would get in a blowout win but you're saying that you if would I was take personally the like involved in a game you're saying if i was personally involved in a game and we pulled out a close victory no i'm saying like okay let's let's do a hypothetical here you got the 40 to 7 trevon boykin mm, tc mm, win. That's, right. that's right yep Okay, if they had beaten Texas in that game on just like Trevon Boykin makes maybe it, it actually I'm picturing it in my mind it was the greatest play anyone's ever made in a football game just like evading the rush like rolling out and like finds a dude in the corner of the end zone like 
I can, I'm I, I'm just stunned with how amazing and artistic it was, and just the kind of guts and the clutchness that it showed in that moment. You would sacrifice how that would make you feel versus just like the lower level but more consistent ecstasy of a blowout. TCU beat Texas thirty three thirty one or something like that this past week. Yeah, that this earlier this season. And it just didn't, it was close. It was down to the end. I mean, TCU had to take a safety at the very end of the game to run, you know, to run it out. And that just didn't feel the same as having, you know, your foot on their neck a whole game. Like I just, I, I, I am maybe I'm, I'm certain I'm probably very different from people on this, but I believe in the ass kicking. I like it start to finish. You don't feel the other team doesn't feel competitive and I will talk shit and feel good about it regardless. <laughs> the shit the talking, the post game shit talking is very important, very it important is. to you. The other um, part of the ass kicking that's important is that the ass kicking really only is materially pleasing. I think when there's some schadenfreude involved. So Sunday night's, uh, Saints win over the Bucks. I think probably felt like that. We want to see Tom Brady mm-hmm. fail a little bit this year, given also that the whole previous week, for anyone that was actually paying any attention to sports stories, were that Tom Brady's in the mix for MVP and Tom Brady's 43. And oh my God, what a year for Tom Brady. So fuck Tom Brady. <laughs> he got his ass whooped and that makes me feel good. And it probably made Josh feel a little bit better even than just the fact that the Saints won by a lot. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking this morning of like, what are the just things that immediately jump to mind? And and if you've listened to the show for a long time, you've probably heard me talk about most of these. And it's like LSU beating Duke in the NCAA tournament in 2006 with like Tyrus Thomas and Big Baby and like making J.J. Reddick cry and like destroying this like Mike Krzyzewski team. And then like the Alabama, LSU Alabama football game last year, like beating, you know, the Nick Saban Alabama team for the first time since 2011 and just like getting past that obstacle. And there was a game, there was like a Saints Pats Monday night game in 2009 where they just totally destroyed Belichick and Brady in that in that Super Bowl year. And so I think I think two things. I think it's in a blowout. Some of those games were blowouts and some of them were were close, but in a blowout it, the other reason it feels good, Joel, is that it tells you something about your team. It mm-hmm. tells you that they're great or that they can be great and that your rival sucks ass. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the Saints did win the Super Bowl in that, that year when they blew out the Pats. And the LSU did win the national championship when they beat Alabama last season. But, you know, that LSU Alabama game last year that was close, where they had all these amazing Sorry. kind of clutch 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 plays like that's tough that's tough to ever ever top that because you have the narrative thing and the excitement thing which that was a little different right and keep in mind like you guys were still mostly in control of that game last year too right it wasn't like they were never it was close sort of they weren't trailing in the second half or anything right yeah and so the 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 narrative or the story we could have told about a biden landslide you know not to make the mistake of, 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 of minimizing this or comparing it to like the, the story we can tell about a TCU victory over, over Texas. But it would have felt, it both would have felt good in the moment to see that map, but it also would have made us feel better about the country mm-hmm. that we were living in, right? Yeah. No, if we, if we knew that Biden was on track for 306 electoral votes and a five mil, wait, is it five million vote? Lead be potentially, more, yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, if, if we had known that late Tuesday night, I think that a lot of but the But if morose- we had known he had been on track for like 450 electoral votes and a 50, like anything, any way yes. that you can like keep piling it on, it's going to feel every Absolutely. marginal vote is going to feel better. Yeah. yeah, there was no joy to be derived from a cliffhanger this week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll talk about the NBA's plan for its 2020-2021 season, which will start on December 22nd and be reduced to 72 games from the usual 82. Why are they doing it that way? What does it mean for the future of the league? To hear our conversation about that, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. One of college football's biggest games of the year was marred by COVID-19 from start to finish Saturday night. Top-rate Clemson was forced to play Notre Dame without its star quarterback Trevor Lawrence, who has missed the last two games after testing positive for the coronavirus. When Clemson went down in double overtime against the Fighting Irish, Notre Dame's fans poured onto the field, a shockingly irresponsible scene amid a pandemic. And two days after Notre Dame reported that coronavirus numbers are as high as they've been since school started in August. But it was hard to blame the Fighting Irish or their fans, given that it was their first win over a number one team since 1993. And now Notre Dame is in the driver's seat to win the ACC regular season title. To win the league outright, the Irish will likely have to beat Clemson with Trevor Lawrence in the title game. And that's, of course, assuming Trevor Lawrence has fully recovered from the effects of COVID-19, which, as we should know by now, is not a given. So, Josh, did we learn anything useful from this game, given that the best player actually didn't play in it? Well, I want to start by saying that Joe Biden's fans poured in front of the White House a shockingly irresponsible scene (laughs) amid a pandemic. (laughs) Stefan, shocked at your irresponsible behavior. Shocked. Yeah, I didn't post any pictures of that celebration that I may have taken myself. Um. (laughs) Joel, you said it was shockingly irresponsible, and you said it was hard to blame the Fighting Irish or their fans. Yeah, take a position, dude. No, I mean, I think, I think, I think it can. I was shocked that they were irresponsible in that way. But then, if you think about it, it's like, okay, I kind of understand. I mean, if they had won in a blowout, then I wouldn't have expected them to to pour onto the field in quite the same way as we've. They would have just enjoyed the blowout from start to finish in the way that we do uh, as we just discussed in the previous segment and so hey they're beating number one in a team that has not yeah, lost a cool. regular season game they did lose let us not blame let's in, not blame in the years. students please i mean most of the students what? did seem to be did seem to be masked um, uh, you want to blame someone they shouldn't have been in the stadium <laughs> you don't want to you want to avoid this situation then don't let any fans into the stadium i mean notre dame's they president they would have let's swarmed somewhere they would have swarmed somewhere on campus they would have swarmed somewhere on if campus if they weren't in the we stadium not i'm not saying they should have been in the stadium swarming. but i i a college at a certain point college students do have to like swarm exercise some res- responsibility oh right I think they've all been exercising a lot, or not all. I think a lot of college students has been have been exercising responsibility. I mean, the kids I've talked to are all wearing masks. 
They're all following the rules. They don't want to get kicked out. They don't want to be sent home. Um, There are consequences on many, many campuses. Whereas the president of Notre Dame was maskless at the Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, at the biggest super spreader event in the country. Reverend John L. Jenkins. And on on, uh, after the after the game on Sunday, he issued a statement chastising students, saying it was disappointing to see the widespread disregard of our health protocols at many gatherings over the weekend. I guess he would know. I mean, and then he he threatened other sanctions against students. But the hypocrisy is pretty rich here. So, Joel, I mean, to answer your question, it feels hard to talk about this as a football game. It was a great football game. And the fourth quarter and overtimes were played at a very high level, great quarterback play from, you know, Notre Dame's veteran Ian Book and the and the Clemson freshman filling in for Trevor Lawrence, DJ Uyangalele. But it just feels like this sport this year, everything, even a great game like this is just overwhelmed by COVID, by the fact that Trevor Lawrence wasn't playing, by, um, you know, what Dabo Swinney has said about COVID, by what is happening in South Bend and what Notre Dame leadership has said and done about it. And so to have a conversation about like, you know, what's going to happen in the rematch potentially in the ACC championship game. And wasn't this a great victory for, for Notre Dame? Like, and I can understand how fans of that team responded in the way that um, they did. But those of us who don't have any kind of partisan rooting interest in this game, just talking about it as a game, it just, I don't know, it, it feels hard to do that. Well, wait a minute. Are we going to feel like this the rest of the year then? Because which, which, which sort of... I just feel like college football resolution. is just, it, it, among all of the sports, it's the hardest one. And, and we've said this, and you've kind of led this conversation, Joel, all, all year. It just feels like treating it like it's a normal sport is irresponsible. And thinking about it, thinking about these like their games and like we're on the road to the playoff and like, you know, who's going to come out on top. It's just like doesn't feel like the right conversation to be having this year. Well, I mean, the thing is, we're also assuming that we're going to make it to a playoff, right? Um, Because right now, you know, every day we keep setting records in terms of COVID infections, um, numbers that would have, you know, paralyzed this country back in March. And now we're again, we're just playing our way through it. And we don't seem to acknowledge that this carnage is going on around us. And I mean, even on this weekend, two Pac-12 games were canceled on its opening week. Cal versus Washington and Arizona versus Utah. Louisville had to postpone its game with Virginia. The Conference USA had to cancel or postpone four of its seven scheduled games this past weekend. And of course, Wisconsin has not played two games since its season opener. Um, all around us, we're seeing, you know, the toll that coronavirus is even taking on the games. Like, you know, we're, we're not even we're not even having a, a fairly even season. You know, like teams are some teams have played a few games. Pac-10, the Pac-12 has just started. Um, it's such a weird year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I feel the same way. I still think that this is shockingly irresponsible to be playing <laughs> in the first place. Right. Um, but I mean, the games are there and I mean, I I can't deny that I didn't watch it, that I didn't find it entertaining, that I want to see more football, but, um, I just can't help but think that, and I I think you all probably feel the same way that we're, we're, there's going to be a price to pay for this at some point. Um, I just don't think that we can continue, um, playing these games this way amid this pandemic in these communities 
and there not be some sort of consequence, um, whether that means that the season, you know, just falls apart near the end or, you know, some team is unable to play or I, I don't know. But I think um, it's the, the, I, in these communities part that is mm-hmm. the strongest argument against all, all of this. I mean, the NFL is playing through multiple positive tests every week among players and staffers. And yet there's a part of my lizard brain that says, uh, this seems to be a better system because you can control the players more. There are more resources to test. Um, then most teams are not doing what Notre Dame did, which is have 20% capacity in the stadium. There were 11,000 plus fans, uh, there for that game, though there are exceptions. Of course, the Dallas Cowboys were proud to say that they had set a COVID record with like 30 plus thousand fans at the, at their last game. Um, so the, the, the irresponsible part feels like it falls as so many things do with college athletics on university presidents and the NCAA and the, the, the role that we've put unpaid professionals, um, in, in, in our society. I mean, Notre Dame had to take two weeks off earlier in the year because of COVID. Um, Notre Dame's president before the game, you know, urged students to redouble their efforts to, to, to get through the semester without a stumble. Meanwhile, Wisconsin's rates are through the roof. Notre Dame's positivity rate was like four over 4% with 200 plus cases on campus. Um, the, 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 the disconnect that, you know, the, the, the cognitive dissonance that's required to sort of watch the game and comment on both the outcome and on the way the university handled the, the, its COVID response is kind of staggering. Yeah. And I think that there, there's also the power dynamic and the power differential between coaches and players in the NFL versus in, in college football. Like, you know, to say that you trust the NFL and NFL franchises more than anything in our society feels like a leap, a leap, but I definitely would trust, um, NFL teams more than college teams to handle this well and, and responsibly and NFL coaches more than college coaches. Well, I think you, you on like a that. median level, like, I, I mean, I'm sure there are individual cases where you might judge that differently, but are there any college coaches that you feel like are handling this in an admirable way? No, what I would say though, is that you would actually think the colleges would be particularly well suited to handle this. They've got medical professionals on their campus. They've got virologists and epidemiologists and all these other like resources that they're clearly not availing themselves of, right? Like, I mean, if they were, you would think that, well, first of all, if they were taking their advice, I can't imagine that any of these schools will be playing football in the first place, right? But yeah, I mean, colleges have no excuse. I mean, they- Well, well what this has shown is just it, the disconnect between sports culture and university culture. And it's just proved um, with a kind of like exclamation point of finality that these football programs in particular are treated as as separate, as different, operate by by different rules, are not a part of the like university culture um, and are treated as, you know, revenue generating engines rather than as, you know, as we're kind of taught to understand them as like vehicles for like education and personal growth and leadership and all that, all that baloney. Um, I think this is, you know, exposed that as a a fundamental uh, untruth, um, you know, in a way that we shouldn't 
ever forget. Yeah, and it's also exposed, I think, the authority and the the importance that we attach or universities attach to coaches. Brian Kelly, the Notre Dame coach, said after the game, I told our team in our walkthrough today, I said, listen, when we win this thing, the fans are going to storm the field. With COVID being as it is, we've got to get off the field and get to the tunnel. If you thought that you were going to win the game and you knew that fans were going to storm the field, you probably could have sussed that out a week or two weeks ahead of time, and I'm sure Brian Kelly did. Did it occur to him that maybe he should raise that concern with the athletic director or the university president and suggest that, hey, there might be some risk here, and maybe we shouldn't put our community at further risk? Yeah, but he probably also felt like you know he had a better chance, or Notre Dame had a better chance to win with fans in the stands. And so that's like a calculation that you have to make. Well, the crowd noise would be useful, but maybe there would, they'll storm the field and that would be a risk, COVID risk for players. Um, I guess we, we saw how that shook out. But I guess the question I have, and I don't know how I would answer this, but like for Notre Dame fans and for, for the players, like they played really well. Like they have a good team. Um, it was a great game, but Trevor Lawrence was out because of COVID. And like, you know, in football, you can only play the the team that other team that's in front of you. A lot of times, you know, who wins the Super Bowl or who wins an individual game, it's down to which team is able to avoid injuries the most. But could have been Ian Book had COVID and Trevor Lawrence didn't. I mean, if you look back at this game in the season, are you going to say, wow, this was like one of the all-time great modern Notre Dame performances and like, what an amazing game. I'm going to like look back on this with pride and look at these highlights. We're going to be like, well, guess it was lucky that our quarterback didn't have COVID that week as opposed to their quarterback. I mean, it's, it just feels like gross and ghoulish in a way that just like, it's kind of gross already to be like, Oh man, like their, their quarterback is out with a like broken leg. So I guess that improves our, our chances, but like to be like, Oh, Trevor Lawrence had COVID like nice. Like that, just, that, that feels a little bit horrible. Yeah. Also there's Trevor Lawrence on the sideline talking to a teammate and pulling his mask down while he's got COVID. I don't know. Yeah, why was he there? It like, doesn't. It I mean, because that's. No I mean, sense. They, they approach the it with the same seriousness. He traveled right. with the team. Right. I mean, they they're approaching it with the same seriousness that they've always, um, that Dabo and Clemson have, you know, uh, taken this thing. I mean, that's that's the sign of it. And I mean, it's just irresponsible to bring that guy to an area. It's not just the school. It's South Bend itself. They're there in the community that is experiencing this this spike in coronavirus cases. So, um, yeah, man, I mean, it is, all of it is sort of disgusting. And I actually, you know, I, I know that, you know, there's ways to account for this, but I don't feel like teams should get a mulligan. I've said this before. I don't think they should get a mulligan because people are sick with COVID right now. Like, I just think that, like, that's the rules you've agreed to play by. And if you happen to miss a game and lose a game because, you know, one of your players was out with COVID, then I don't think that that, you know, that that, that should not work into the final uh, numbers. But I, to that point, Bill Connolly, uh, our dude over at ESPN, uh, ran the numbers. I know we're, you know, we've been spending a couple of uh, segments talking about the numbers. And uh, Notre Dame actually dropped a spot after its win over Clemson in his rankings. And Clemson is like at number three after a loss. So, um, I mean, I guess that's just supposedly how good Clemson is. And 
you know, uh, Trevor Lawrence is a piece of it, but uh, they still got a pretty good team and they're still going to get in there. But I just, the idea that like, well, you know, our quarterback was out because he had COVID. Well, shit, you wanted to play in COVID. Like, you, this, is, this is, I mean, so if that guy misses a game, I mean, those are the rules you, you signed up for, buddy. And now it is time for After Balls. Jeopardy host and legend Alex Trebek died on Sunday of pancreatic cancer. Trebek was obviously a huge polymath, and that included sports. He was Canadian, loved hockey. There's a clip making the rounds of a young Trebek narrating a 1967 NHL highlight reel. Earlier this year for the NHL draft, he announced the Ottawa Senators' third pick, and he did a hockey-themed Jeopardy in Ottawa a few years ago. But the best Trebek involving sports was on the show when contestants blew sports questions. Claire McNear of The Ringer, whose book about Jeopardy answers in the form of questions, a definitive history and insider's guide to Jeopardy, actually publishes on Tuesday, did a terrific roundup of Jeopardy sports fails uh, a couple of years ago. In 2017, Three contestants missed every answer in a category titled Talkin' Football after no one buzzed in on your choice, do or don't name this play in which the QB runs the ball and can choose to pitch it to another back. Trebek knew what was up, and here's what happened next. It's an option play. Ryan? Uh, football, 400. I can tell you guys are big football fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom Landry perfected the shotgun formation with this team. Dallas Cowboys. Uh, do you think we should go to commercial? <laughs> <laughs> they went on to miss the answer offsetting penalties. These penalties are simultaneous violations by the offense and defense that cancel each other out. And then the $1,000 last question in the category, last answer in the category was the purple people eaters. Minnesota Vikings defense from the You gotta 70s. get that one. Come on. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't get anything. But the biggest Jeopardy sports fail miss ever had to be in 2014. Let's listen. 100 plus assists in an NHL season has been accomplished only 13 times. 11 times by this player. Joe, who's Magic Johnson? Oh, no. Diane? Who's Wayne Gretzky? Wayne Gretzky. We're talking about hockey, not the NBA. Classic. There are more of those in uh, Claire McNear's story, which we'll link to on our uh, homepage. Stefan, there are a lot of people who listen to this show who aren't necessarily huge sports fans, but they just like the way that we talk about sports. And I think you should make them feel safe and comfortable. Like, we're not, we don't make fun of people here if they don't know that Tom Landry she, coached the Dallas Cowboys. I'll let Joel take the <laughs> football category. <laughs> Shit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. But oh, I man, these I, people know, like, Renaissance poets. I mean, come Study on, a little man. bit of football. I mean, yeah, come on. I mean, as we know from white men can't jump, there are, you know, it is possible to, you know, be, have some expertise in a number of many different categories. And Instead I don't of foods that. that start with the letter Q, what about quarterbacks that start with the letter Q? Quincy Carter, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Brady Quinn, you know, we could, we could go on like this. All right, Stefan, we're putting you to work this week. You give us the afterball name, and now you're going to give us an Alex Trebek. Stefan. What is your Alex Trebek? 
Well, I didn't know about Ernie Chambers until I read a Twitter thread the other day about how the former Nebraska state senator helped save the red state's split electoral college voting and the single blue vote that for a while looked like it might be important for Joe Biden. Fascinating story. We'll link to that, too, in the show page. I probably would have just stopped there. One more grain in the beach of political news that we've all been consuming until sports writer Patrick Ruby tweeted that Chambers had advocated paying college athletes long before anybody else. So I started reading, and what a man and what a story. Ernie Chambers was a barber and civil rights activist in Omaha in the 1960s. His first notice came in 1966 when he appeared in an Academy Award-nominated documentary called A Time for Burning, which was about a white Omaha pastor's efforts to reach out to a black church. Here's Chambers with a minute of fire after the pastor agrees that the problem with race relations is that white people think they're better than black people. I can't solve the problem. You guys pull the strings at closed schools. You guys draw the boundaries that keep our kids restricted to the ghetto. You guys write up the restrictive covenants that keep us out of houses. So it's up to you to talk to your brothers and your sisters and persuade them that they have a responsibility. We've assumed ours for over 400 years, and we're tired of this kind of stuff now. We're not going to suffer patiently anymore. No more turning the other cheek. No more blessing our enemies. No more praying for those who despitefully use us. We're going to show you that we've learned the lessons you've taught us. We've studied your history, and you did not take over this country by singing, We Shall Overcome. You did not gain control of the world like you have it now by dealing fairly with a man and keeping your word. You're treaty breakers, you're liars, you're thieves, you rape entire continents and races of people. Then you wonder why these very people don't have any confidence or trust in you. Your religion means nothing. Your law is a farce and we see it every day. You demonstrated it in Alabama. And I can say you because you're part of the whole system. You profit from it. In fact, you make your living from it. You couldn't walk around and talk to people, stand up in your pulpit on Sunday and preach nice little songs and say, now we're going to give thanks to the Lord for he is good and old Jesus be among us. As far as we're concerned, your Jesus is contaminated, just like everything else you've tried to force upon us is contaminated. God damn. It is worth noting that Chambers, and you can kind of hear this in the background, delivers that monologue while cutting a kid's hair. Ernie Chambers served in Nebraska's unicameral legislature, usually as its only black member, from 1971 until he was term-limited out in 2009, and again from 2013 until this year when, at age 83, term limits forced him out again. In those 46 years, he made white Nebraska a little more aware and a little more fair. On the floor of the Senate, in short-sleeved sweatshirts and jeans, he talked about slavery and social justice. He sponsored laws that helped elect people of color to formerly all-white school boards and city councils. He pushed legislation prohibiting discrimination against people with AIDS and divesting Nebraska from investments in South Africa. He succeeded briefly in getting the death penalty repealed. His last bill that became law requires cops to get two hours of anti-bias training every year. He called it a peewee measure. When Chambers received hate mail from the KKK once, he went to the town postmarked on the envelope and talked on the radio and met with residents. In 2015, in a debate over an open carry bill, Chambers said that my ISIS is the police. Last year, when the Senate debated a bill requiring students to respect the flag, he said, every hateful thing that was done to black people was done under the aegis of that rag. 
And yes, he exposed and fought the pervasive inequities in college sports. In 1971, his very first year in the Senate, Chambers announced that he hoped Nebraska would lose to Alabama in the Orange Bowl because the university exploited black athletes and because the state managed to obsess about football but not social problems. Nebraska won the game. Chambers read into the Senate record a letter calling him a black bastard who should go back to Africa. He kept it up. In 1975, Chambers wrote a poem to the local paper, gloating about Nebraska losing in the Fiesta Bowl, which he dubbed the Fiasco Bowl. In 1978, he said he wished Oklahoma had beaten the Cornhuskers because the state was so impoverished that football has become Nebraska. In 1980, he endorsed a letter-writing campaign to dissuade black recruits from coming to Nebraska because of alleged exploitation by the school. All of that led to what would be Chambers' most quixotic effort. In 1981, he introduced legislation classifying athletes as university employees so that they could get salaries and workers' compensation. Just as other students are paid for on-campus jobs, football players who labor in a hazardous occupation and produce huge revenue should be paid, he said. If I do anything that has a negative effect on Nebraska football, they'll want to hang me in here. He did it anyway. Year after year, Chambers introduced a form of the bill, knowing it would fail, but also knowing that the university and the NCAA would notice. They did. One year, Nebraska football coach Tom Osborne said that if the bill passed, Nebraska would be expelled from the NCAA. Everything would perish, a local columnist wrote. The bill was an Ernie Chambers sideshow. Chambers just kept fighting. Everybody benefits from this football team monetarily who is associated with it, except the ones who generate the money, he said. They're being paid not only by money, clothing, cars, but female flesh as well. And everybody from the college president to the athletic director knows it. Then they're cheated out of what the academic side of the college is supposed to give them. The female flesh line drew howls of outrage. Another year, Chambers wore a Nebraska helmet and jersey onto the Senate floor. Through his face mask, he rallied against the hypocrisy of players getting cash under the table and losing scholarships when their eligibility expired before they could finish their degrees. The picture made the papers. Sports Illustrated wrote about him. He went on the Phil Donahue show. Chambers' bill finally passed in 2003. It never took effect because it required other states in the Big 12 conference to follow suit. But it didn't matter. He knew that defending black athletes and overhauling college sports, like fighting for racial and economic justice, was a long game. Today, Nebraska football players aren't employees, not yet anyway, but they get cost-of-living stipends. And, after Nebraska this year became the third state to pass legislation, they will be able to cash in on their names, images, and likenesses. Chambers didn't sponsor the bill, but he did testify on its behalf, and he used some of the exact same language as he had forever. College sports, he said, is a multi-billion dollar high-octane entertainment business in which the workers are not to be paid. Worthy of the man. Um, that was really good, Stefan, and I'm jealous because I, I, after that video went viral earlier in the year, I... I've had him on my list forever, man. Even if I didn't get to write about him, I just wanted to talk to him. I wanted to see where he, how what sort of makes a man like that. At first, I mean, I just thought that a black guy talking to a white man like that in the 1960s, like we heard of that clip. I mean, I just had not, I had not heard that uh, before. So 
that was shocking. No, it was like um, it was Ali like. I mean, it was. I mean, it's yeah. composed. I mean, that's one take. That clip is amazing. Um, yeah. And you still yeah. can't talk to him, Joel, man. There's so much more with this guy, as I discovered in going through yeah. newspapers.com, looking to, you know, to piece together his history of, of his relationship with sports. Yeah. Um, he said when he left the Senate in the summer that he wasn't sure what he was going to do next, but he left open the possibility of returning to the legislature when he's eligible to run again in four years when he'd be 87. Unbelievable. My closing thing I'd say about him is that, you know, there's a lot of talk about men who are men of their time. You know what I mean? When when you're like excusing whatever mistakes or cruelty these dudes inflict on other people. So you'll hear like people that supported slavery or Jim Crow or whatever. But the problem with that is, is that there were always people like Ernie Chambers who were there making it clear what was wrong. So and he spoke with kind of moral clarity that you could not mistake which side of the argument you should have been on in terms of, you know, racial and social justice and or paying players. And it's just kind of amazing that we're still having that yeah, fight today. Very well said. And also, it's just a reminder that, you know, historical literacy is important because if you don't know about Ernie Chambers, then you can think that this idea of treating players as employees or, or paying them is like something that, you know, us smart people uh, invented a few years ago. But, you know, Ernie Chambers saw this decades upon decades ago. And so we need to have some humility that, as you said, there were people back, you know, it's easy to be like, nobody was talking about this a few years ago. And that erases the contributions of people like Ernie Chambers who brought us to this moment now when it feels like, you know, what was once an extremely minority opinion, but one that was still out there being articulated is now something closer to um, prevailing, something closer to majority. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Jasmine Ellis, filling in for Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.